You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Well, good morning. It's uh, so great to see a full house. Well, it's summer, and as sometimes happens in summer, we are a little short of volunteers this morning. So it looks like the children will be staying with us for the whole service. Uh, This will be fun. Kids, you should have a fill-in sheet uh, to follow along. Uh, if, and adults, actually, you should have a fill-in sheet, too, or a, a sheet. Uh, if anybody doesn't have a sheet, do you want to put up your hand? We can get one to you. Uh, for the adults, uh, it's just a list of the passages that I'll be going through, and the ones that are in red are the passages that we'll go through together, and then the other passages are just ones that I reference in, in, the, uh, in the message. So, just a raise of hands. How many are here that I have taught in Sunday school? Okay, few of you, great. So the fill-in sheet's going to be really easy for you guys, right? What, what, was, what was the answer? There's always a correct answer in Sunday school, and that is? Jesus, exactly. So that's the answer to all the questions. I'm kind of giving it away ahead of time, but you guys can follow along. And at the end, if you turn it into Mrs. Gordon in the fellowship hall, she will give you treats. So uh, that's amazing. Now, if you're too young to write, don't worry about it. Just turn it over. Maybe ask a, a, draw me a picture or ask one of an older brother and sister to help fill it out. Well, we made it. This is the last lesson in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, I hope that you have enjoyed it as much as I have. It's a challenging book in many different ways. Add to that the challenge of a different preacher every week. And for some that may have made made it difficult to get into a rhythm with this book. If you'll permit me a couple of minutes, I'd like to give you a bit of inside baseball knowledge here. When it comes to sermons and sermon preparations, there are two main parts. They have fancy sounding names for each part. The first is called hermeneutics, uh, which is basically reading and studying of God's word, Bible interpretation, if you will. Now, sound and proper Bible interpretation is done with the assistance of certain aids like Bible dictionaries, Uh, Bible encyclopedias, but mainly with books called commentaries, which are usually written by biblical scholars. These aids act as guardrails and prevent the preacher from going off-road and starting a whole new branch of Christianity. Uh, All of this is also overseen through prayer and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So all of that is hermeneutics. The second part is called homiletics, and that's what I'm doing right now. This is the delivery of the prepared sermon, the preaching moment, if you will. The Holy Spirit also oversees this part of the sermon. What you hear in the audience is not always what we say from the pulpit. This is thanks to the fact that as believers, we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, or if you're an unbeliever, and perhaps the Holy Spirit's at work in your heart, your conscience will make you pay closer attention to some parts than others. Now, the amazing thing about the hermeneutic side of sermons is that part of the process is that the preacher brings his life experience and his personal worldview to the interpretation process. He can't help it, and it's 
actually part of the process. One of the guys in the preaching cohort said, uh, said something that was told to him by a previous pastor of his, and it went something like this. When you were given the opportunity to preach and share God's word with his people, you are experiencing a divine appointment orchestrated by a sovereign God for his people. This divine appointment is between you and them. I know we all like consistency in church. We like the same start time. We like seeing the same order of service. We like seeing the same worship leader sing. And we like the same pastor preaching every week. And we have missed our pastor. Uh, I say all of that just to point out what a unique experience we have all had the last 16 weeks as we work together, preachers and congregation, through the book of Ecclesiastes. You've been able to listen to five different perspectives on the teachings of the book. The core lessons have all been consistent with both the statement of faith for this church and with Reformed theology as a whole. But five different men in five different stages of their lives have shared what they have learned about the book during sermon preparation and how the book has impacted them in the process. The hardest part for the preacher in all of this has been, and I think I speak for, for each of us, is deciding exactly what we have time to share with you on Sunday morning. During sermon preparation, we learn so much more than we could ever share in a 30 to 45 minute sermon. God's word is so rich in wisdom and goodness, and that's what makes the editing process so difficult. So I'll just wrap up this little preamble with this. Gentlemen, it has been my honor to have shared this book this pulpit, and this preaching series with you, and I have been uh, proud to stand beside each of you during this process, so thank you. So with that little bit of knowledge, inside knowledge, I would like to encourage you to go back and listen on SoundCloud or, or Facebook, and maybe listen to the series again and pay close attention to what your life is experience is causing you to take from the book of Ecclesiastes. All right, enough of that. Thanks for your patience. Let's open our Bibles today to chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes. It is of vital importance that you have uh, God's Word open in front of you. If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, there should be one in the back of the pew in front of you. Um, and if you don't have a Bible at home, we would encourage you to take that Bible home. Um, it's so important to have easy and open access to God's Word. And all you hipsters and techies can follow along on your phones, if you like, uh, if you have the app. So, uh, okay, so let's, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, I'm going to start at verse 1, and I'm going to read the whole chapter, and then I'll pray. And God's word says, Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut, when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, 
or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Please join me in prayer. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the freedom that we enjoy to come and gather as a body and to study your word. I just pray that my words be your words this morning, my thoughts be your thoughts. And if there is anything that I say that is out of line with your will, I just ask that it fall on deaf ears. And we do all this to bring you, King, glory. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so the first seven verses of this chapter are actually connected to the last four verses of the previous chapter, chapter 11. Verses 11.7 to 11.10 are advice to a younger version of Kohelet. And 12, starting in 12 verse 1 to 12 verse 7, are the observations of one entering into old age. I think it is God's providence once again that I am preaching this section. Uh, I just turned 60 two weeks ago, so I can identify with a lot of these uh, descriptions in this passage. Uh, In chapter 12, verses 1 to 7 present aging, various imagery, using various imagery, and the closing of our days. Let's remember, for Solomon thought that that descent ended in Sheol. Okay, kids, there's the first question and answer. Solomon thought we go to Sheol, but, when we, but we know we go to see Jesus, right? Okay, verse 1 starts with a warning and a reminder that we should not merely be concerned with our well-being, but we must also keep in mind our maker, our creator. In verse 1, when he says, Before the evil days come and the years where you say, I have no pleasure in them. And then in verse 2, before the sun and light and the moon and the stars are darkened, refers to the winding down of our days. The clouds return after the rain. This has been interpreted as the effect of not bouncing back from an illness as quickly as we did when we were younger. But the text presents old age itself as evil days. Keep in mind that in those days, they did not have the medical procedures that we have or the pain medication that we have access to. In those days, if your knees were bad or your hip was worn out, they didn't schedule you to get a replacement. And that's what he's referring to in verse 3 when he writes, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble. The keepers of the house are the legs that act as a foundation for us as we move through life. Most of us have personally experienced or watched family members begin to get unsteady on their legs as they age. We lose muscle tone as we age, and the legs have difficulty supporting us. 
The strong men bent referred to is referring to the arms losing of their strength or perhaps becoming bent from arthritis or other joint pain. The grinders cease because they are few addresses the loss of teeth that happens as we age. Keep in mind, modern dentistry is considered to have been developed around the 1720s. So cavities aside, people would have had broken teeth or gum disease, all leading to the loss of teeth. The windows dimming and doors closing in verse 4 are referencing the eyes and ears of the aged person and how it becomes difficult to see and hear your surroundings. As you age and experience this, you begin to feel your world close in around you and you withdraw into yourself. Again, this was written in a time without glasses or hearing aids. The grinding is low and up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. These lines bring to mind the problems of indigestion, light sleep that happens as we get older, and the loss of our voice or ability to sing due to weakened lungs. And then, beginning in verse 5, we touch on some of the things that affect our dignity as we become older. Ladders and even stairs hold fresh new terrors as the keepers of the house begin to tremble. Imagine the terrors are in the way for an, imagine the terrors for an older person moving through narrow streets trying to stay out of the way of fast-moving horses, carts, or other people. And the almond tree blossoms refer to graying hair. Not that I have any experience with that. Uh, and the grasshopper drags itself along, contrasts the movement of young, healthy grasshopper with the aged and dying version of the insect. Solomon even touches on the failing desire as interpreted in the ESV. This, of course, referring to the waning sexual desire one feels as they near the end of their days. Remember how in, back in chapter 2, Solomon bragged of his sexual conquests with his many wives and concubines? Well, with age, this avenue of pursuing pleasure and meaning to life begins to get closed off. And then the last half of verse 5 speaks to the inevitable end that awaits us all, that concluding journey carried along by six friends to our final resting place. So let's stop here for a couple of minutes and dwell on what these verses are saying to us. When Pastor John first assigned this book to the cohort, we were each given a, a copy of a book titled Living Life Backwards, written by David Gibson. Uh, it is a commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes, written by a pastor. And I have to be honest, when I first read it, it's a small book, it's only about 160 pages. I, I really didn't care for it too much, um, but I was wrong. It, it is a well-written book and not at all like the scholar, scholarly written commentaries that I was used to. As I've worked our way through these last verses of Ecclesiastes, I have developed a new appreciation for Pastor Gibson's book. The main premise of his book is that the author of Ecclesiastes is trying to teach us a different way to live. Since we all share the ultimate fate, the ultimate ending, those who know God should consider living life backwards. Gibson writes in his book, rather than living shrouded in death, Ecclesiastes has been teaching us to live a life shaped by death. Let me repeat that. Rather than living shrouded in death, Ecclesiastes has been teaching us to live a life shaped by death. As believers in a risen Lord Jesus Christ, we have supreme confidence in our final destination, a new Jerusalem on a new earth, 
paradise restored. Okay, kids, if you're paying attention, that's the answer to the second fill-in. As believers in a risen who? Jesus, great. We have supreme confidence in our final destination. I appreciate your patience here. I'm kind of doing double duty. Uh, we're doing a sermon and teaching Sunday school at the same time, so uh, just enjoy. Um, so we shouldn't fear death nor obsess over it, nor should we use our security in our final destination to isolate ourselves from the world awaiting our last day or the return of Christ. We should instead live with confidence that our conclusion is overseen and assured by a sovereign God. So think on that for a little bit, and I'll come back to this idea. So let's go back in, in today's text and look at verse 6 and 7. We see several poetic descriptions of the same thing, our death. The silver cord is snapped, the silver cord representing our lifespan. The golden bowl is broken, the golden bowl representing an oil-burning lamp. In those days, the bowl would have been on a shelf or suspended from the ceiling and would be filled with oil or melted animal fat with a wick in it. The golden bowl being broken is indicating the extinguishing of our life light. The pitcher shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern. Both images bring up the fetching of water from a well using a pulley system and then using a pitcher to bring the life-sustaining water home to the family. No water no life. And finally, in verse 7, Solomon returns to a familiar theme found throughout the Old Testament, the returning of man to dust. Genesis 2-7 tells us that man was formed out of the dust. And in 3-19, it tells us, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Job 10-9 and chapters 34-15, also Psalm 9, verse 30, and even Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 20, all speak to the same theme of returning to dust. Okay, so let's step back and take a look at what Kohelet's been teaching us. For Kohelet, the purpose of this book was to discover the meaning of life. But as we've discovered, the pursuit of this knowledge was handicapped because Solomon was depending on his wisdom to determine the success of these pursuits. Now, it was a God-given wisdom and the Bible tells us in 1 Kings 10.23, quote, Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. None were wiser than Solomon. But we also discovered back in chapter 2 of the book of 1 Kings that this wisdom was a wisdom given to allow Solomon to govern God's people wisely and properly. It was an administrative wisdom. It was God-given wisdom, but not necessarily godly wisdom. As a matter of fact, the God that Kohelet portrays in this book of Ecclesiastes is a cold and impersonal God. Sometimes God is portrayed as vengeful and a bully by Solomon. The personal covenantal God of Genesis or Exodus is not found in Ecclesiastes. The name Yahweh is not found in this book. And we need to review why this is. Again, the answer is found in 1 Kings 11 verse 4. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. And further in chapter 11, verse 9, And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. So despite two personal visits from Yahweh, as recorded in 1 Kings, Solomon allowed his many wives to turn his heart away from the one true God. 
This experience of turning away from God helps explain the Hebrew idiom recorded several times in Ecclesiastes under the sun. And that's being, we're made to understand that that's to, to indicate a life lived apart from God. Add to this the information we learned together when we went through chapters 6 and 9, that at the time of the writing of this book of Ecclesiastes, Israel had not yet fully developed its eschatology, its end-time thinking. Even up to the time of Jesus, the Sadducees were denying the possibility of a resurrection. The end of man that the Sadducees and Solomon in his time were, was, were convinced of was a shadowy holding place known as Sheol. It's no wonder that Solomon has such a skewed view of God that he speaks about in Ecclesiastes. His description of God at times fails to align with the rest of the Old Testament. Take, for example, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. So please turn with me there for a minute. Ecclesiastes 3, 12 and 13. And Solomon writes, I received that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of this toil. This is God's gift to man. Now we're going to contrast this thought with the teaching of Paul in the book of Romans. Turn with me to Romans chapter 14. Romans 14, verses 17. Romans 14, verses 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by, them, by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Now, a little context for this passage in Romans, so you don't think I'm taking it out of context. While it is true that Paul is addressing the eating of food offered to idols and warning the reader to avoid causing a weaker brother to stumble, Paul is still teaching that the kingdom of God and thus the kingdom work we should be engaged in is working and living according to righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Not finding our joy only, now hear me when I say only in our toil or eating and drinking like Ecclesiastes claims. Of course, we are meant to enjoy these gifts of food and drink, and we were certainly made for work. But if those are the only areas we seek validation and purpose, then we are not living a Christian life, my friends. And I'll come back to this in a minute. Okay, so let's go back to today's text once again. Back in verse 8 of chapter 12 in Ecclesiastes. I just, I just want to give a quick recap here um, while you're turning back to Ecclesiastes. In case you're joining us for the first or second time, I've been throwing out these terms, Ecclesiastes, Kohelet, Solomon, the preacher and the teacher. Let me explain. The original name of the book in Hebrew is Kohelet, which translates into English as one who gathers. Um, the title could also refer to a gathering of teachings that are assembled. Ecclesiastes is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word kohelet, so it also means one who gathers or a gathering of sayings. Ecclesiastes comes from the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of what we call the Old Testament. 
that translation was completed for the benefit of the Israelites who had been scattered uh, during the years of exile. They had adopted Greek as their language, which was the cultural and trade language of the region. Some of them had lost um, their Hebrew language. Now, King Solomon, that's King David's son, that's Solomon, he's the person credited with writing the book of Kohelet, or Ecclesiastes. And our English Bibles translate the word Kohelet, or Ecclesiastes, in the text of the book. They translate it either into the term the teacher or the preacher, depending on which translation you may be reading. The English Bibles use those terms because both a preacher and a teacher gather, pe gather people to teach them. So the ESV, which we use here at Redemption, translates Kohelet into the phrase, the preacher. I just don't want to lose any of you out there. I see a few of you starting to nod off, so I just wanted to make sure everybody's still tracking. Okay, verse 8. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. What a pleasant and upbeat thought, huh? Now, it seems what the preacher is saying, all of life is a vanity or meaningless. But to be completely fair, I don't think this is what Solomon is actually saying. To understand this verse, and actually a great deal of the entire book itself, we're going to go back to chapter 1 in Ecclesiastes. Turn with me to chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes, verse 13. Chapter 1, verse 13. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Okay, stay here for a second. So what is this unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with? The answer to this question was not evident when we were reading and studying through the book the first time. But I think now with some context and hindsight under our belts, we can come to a conclusion for this question. Look at verses 14 and 15. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Do you see that phrase, under the sun, combined with all is vanity? Let's translate those Hebrew idioms again. Under the sun is a life lived apart from God or without God in your life, guiding you and giving you your values. All is vanity comes from the Hebrew word hevel, which just like in the opening video, it says it is like a vapor or a chasing after the wind. And then in verse 15, here we see what, what is crooked cannot be made straight, implying that those things that God has made crooked, man cannot straighten out. So let's put this all together. We see that if you are living a life apart from God, apart from the Creator, it is not a good thing. Which is why we are reminded in verse 1 of today's passage to remember your Creator. If we are existing without God, we will be given, by God, the ability to enjoy food and drink and toil in this life. But what a meaningless life it will be, and we might as well be chasing after the wind. For the conclusion will be the same we will end up with a bucket of nothing for the afterlife. This is the unhappy business that God has given to those under the sun, to find true meaning for your life without the deeper understanding that can only come from a proper relationship with God through Christ. Okay, kids, final answer was just revealed. To find true meaning for your life, you must have a proper relationship with... 
I see lots of candy in the future here. Okay, good job, guys. Okay, but I know, I know you guys are so smart, you probably had all the answers filled in anyway, didn't you? Yeah, you, yeah, okay, great, that's great. Okay, you kids can relax for the rest of the lesson. For the rest of us, in earlier chapters of Ecclesiastes, we've learned that finding meaning in accomplishing great feats of construction was unfulfilling. Looking for meaning in accumulating vast amounts of, of real estate and wealth was unfulfilling. Hundreds of wives and concubines and the sexual conquest with these women were unfulfilling. Looking for justice here on earth was unfulfilling. Worship of other gods and through improper methods was unfulfilling. Even the pursuit of first wisdom, and then Solomon pursued folly, all of that was still unfulfilling, as was the pursuit of fame and honor. The overindulgence of food and alcohol, again, failed to provide fulfillment. We can try and put these things down as as the searching for truth by a simple ruler from a simple time, and we are much too sophisticated for that today, right? I mean, really? Are we too sophisticated? Look to the entertainment world to see how happy fame and fortune alone makes you today. How many celebrities have taken their own lives or have been in rehab clinics repeatedly? These are not the actions of happy, well-adjusted human beings. The final thing I want us to see from this book is the importance of looking for our values and morals in the proper location. Just before we get back to the last section of today's text, I want to introduce you to another literary device that is used in the Bible. I know, I know, you guys didn't come to church to have a creative writing lesson, but, but it's important that I explain this, and, and I'll, I'll explain. In Ecclesiastes and elsewhere in the Bible, there is a technique used known as the frame narrative. And this refers to the technique when sometimes the first part of a book or sometimes the last part of the book, and, and even in some cases, both the first and the last parts of the book are written by a different author, uh, especially a different author than the, the person that wrote the main body of the book. A perfect example of this is the last chapter of Deuteronomy. We don't have to turn there, but I put the address in the notes you should have received, and I'll quickly explain. So the first five books of the Bible are collectively known as the Pentateuch and are generally ascribed as being written by Moses. Obviously, Moses wasn't in the Garden of Eden or during the flood or really during any part of Genesis, but Moses, however, is credited with writing that book. But the last chapter of Deuteronomy 34, especially from the verse 8 and following, where the chapters describing the events that happened after Moses' death, these were clearly not written by Moses. I don't care how talented an author he was. He wasn't going to write things after he was dead. So a fancy word here is an epilogist. That's, it just means a person that writes an epilogue or a conclusion to the book. So an epilogist wrote the ending to Deuteronomy. Now the same literary device is used here in Ecclesiastes. And we have evidence for this in the fact that the words of chapters 1 and verses 1 to 2 and chapters 12, verses 9 to 14, they're written in the third person referring to the preacher. And it would be weird for Solomon to start suddenly writing about himself as the preacher, like we see here in verse 9. So let's go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes chapter, chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. Let me read that. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. 
The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprotely, he wrote words of truth. What we see here is that the preacher was not some ivory tower academic who simply researched and wrote. No, he is credited with actually teaching and sharing his knowledge that he discovered along the way. He studied people and events and recorded what he saw in order to help make others more wise. The weighing and studying and arranging of words demonstrates the careful evaluation and the thoroughness that he put into his work. And verse 10 says that he sought to find words of delight, but inevitably his sense of honesty caused him to write words of truth as he experienced it. Verse 11 talks about the words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed. Let's read 11 and 12. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings they are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. So the, the words of the wise are like goads. This is an agriculturally based metaphor. Goads were the hardened ends of the shepherd's staff used to keep livestock on the proper path. Sometimes they were metal tipped, sometimes they were simply hardened by charring the wood in a fire, and sometimes they actually had nails driven through them with the business end of the nail sticking out on the other side just to help get the animal's attention. But isn't this so true for us as well? Sometimes God's word is so pointed and the correct correction we hear is painful. Sometimes God's words almost convict us so badly that we almost want to say ouch at times. At times like that, we must keep in mind that we have a loving Father in heaven who only wants what is best for us, not always what is comfortable for us. And that's why in the end of the verse 11, we read that these corrections come from the one shepherd, who we know as Jesus Christ. In verse 12, this new author warns his son of the fact that there is no end to making of many books, and in the reading of some of them, there is weariness. Do you want to become weary? Try reading six or seven books from the self-help section of a bookstore, especially those that are written by secular authors, and try following their advice. Sometimes all you have to do is try harder, or get up earlier, or eat better, or become better organized to be happy. And if you are trying these things in a life lived apart from God, your creator, whose only begotten son loved you enough to bear the penalty of your sin on the cross, you, my friend, are chasing after the wind. So we have two verses left, which means we are in the final half hour of the book. Just kidding, see if you're still awake. Uh, okay, let's look at verses 13 and 14. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now we get to the good stuff. Fear God and keep his commandments. The order of these two instructions are important. Fear and then keep. And the proper understanding of the concept of fear of the Lord is important. This is not referring to, to a fear or a terror of an abusive God who is just waiting for you to make a mistake before he rains down judgment on you. Rather, it is more about having a proper understanding of who God is, what his attributes are, all of them even the ones that make us uncomfortable and a little afraid. Like his holiness, his justness, the fact that he will judge us one day, and his uncompromising righteousness 
that requires him to apply the law evenly to all, even to you and me. Combined with this knowledge, we must keep in mind that we are in relation to the creation, who we are in relation to the creator. We are just the creation. We would prefer to think of God as love and as forgiving and that he is going to let us let some of my sins slide while harshly judging the really bad guys like Hitler and Stalin. Or sometimes we separate the father from the son. Sure, th- that Old Testament God that punished the Canaanites, he's a tough God. But the son, Jesus, who went to the cross like a lamb, he's a sweet and cuddly God that I can get close to because he's a nice guy. Here's something to think about. In Genesis chapters 18 and 19, where we read the account of the judgment and destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, when the two cities were destroyed by rain of fire and sulfur, Jesus was also part of the Trinity at that time. Jesus was standing alongside the Father and the Holy Spirit, passing judgment on those sinful people in perfect unity within the Godhead. Understanding that God and the fact that we are in a period of grace where up to now God has not rained down that judgment again, even though we could arguably say that in today we probably deserve it every bit as much as Sodom and Gomorrah, because we certainly are just as, as wicked. Understanding that we deserve that very same fate, that is the beginning of the fear of the Lord. Once you have that fear and comprehend how dynamic the restraining power of grace is, then we are driven to obey to keep the commandments. Not from a sense of fear of reprisal, but instead from a sense of gratitude and appreciation that God has predestined you to receive that gift. An appreciation that God is restraining his wrath that you deserve as a sign of honor for the cost of the work of Jesus on our behalf. And verse 14 reminds us that we have not escaped judgment. Revelation 20 and 21 echoes and confirms the same thought. One day we will all stand before God to be judged for our words and our deeds, even the ones we think are secret. Friends, if that thought alone is not enough to drive you to your knees to accept Jesus as Savior, you're a tougher person than I am. So knowing this day of judgment is coming, and with the help of the frame narrator, the apologist, it begs this question we should be asking ourselves, where do I find my meaning in life? Where do I turn to find the guiding principles that I'm living my life by? With this end, the final judgment in mind, How am I living my life? Am I living it backwards with the end in mind? Or am I only looking forward as far as my next conquest or my next acquisition or my next investment allows me to look? Where do I get my values from? Hollywood, the media, culture, fashion, feminism, Joe Rogan, Jordan Peterson, Andrew Tate, the government and their bureaucrats, from scientific or medical experts, or are we constantly and consistently turning to God's word and the teaching from faithful expositors of his word? Let me illustrate the dangers of relying on culture, the media, and the government as a source of our values. It has come to, to light this past week that a grievous evil has taken place here in Alberta and that the government was complicit in the execution of this evil and they even financially rewarded the person that perpetrated this horrific affront to our society. The cultural faux pas? A woman wrote an essay 
praising the God-given task that women have been bestowed with, that of being able to nurture new life in their bodies and bring this new life to term. This person who wrote the essay, of whom the government rewarded her with a cash prize of $200 for this propaganda, the author of the essay had the temerity to suggest that a woman having multiple children is of greater benefit and value to society as a whole rather than her simply going out and having a career and finding fulfillment in that role instead. The author went on to point out that the absurd notion that, and I quote, women are not exactly equal to men. The UCP government has since apologized for this lack of good judgment, and they have been suitably shamed in the Canadian press by their very wise reporter. I'm sure there were suitable instances of outrage and harumphing at various offices of very important sounding organizations. That was sarcasm throughout that whole part, in case you missed it. Okay, I just want to clarify that. Um, that is one of the examples of morals and values that culture, government, and media, and all others are conspiring to install on our behalf. Are we better off with those morals, friends, or with biblical morals? Don't be too quick to give up the moral high ground to these types of individuals. Let me close in prayer as the worship team comes back up, and then after the final song, I'll come back up for a brief conclusion. Father, I thank you for this day, and I thank you for the guiding light of your word. What a blessed assurance that we have and can take from the proper understanding of your teachings contained within these words. 66 books written by over 40 different authors spanning a period of time of at least 2,000 years, all pointing to one single consistent message, your perfect plan of salvation. That plan was agreed upon by all the members of the Trinity before creation and time began. Oh, what a perfect plan it is. Ecclesiastes tells us there is nothing new under the sun. How accurate that is. Man today is still repeating the same sin that our forefather Adam did in the Garden of Eden. We are still trying to be like God. Lord, I pray for our leaders. I pray they once again are able to humbly submit themselves to your reign and leading. I pray that these leaders in government and justice and medical fields understand that you have placed them there and they are required to follow your teachings as well. Lord, if they don't yet know you, I pray that they come to a saving knowledge of who you are and what you have accomplished for them. Lord, I am just as simple as they are, and I have a healthy fear of who you are and a deep appreciation for the gift you are willing to give to all who call on you. Thank you for the guidance of your word and the empowerment and indwelling of the Holy Spirit that not only opens our hearts and minds to your teachings, but the Spirit also fills us to overflowing with your love for us to share with others. And we pray these things in the powerful name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.